0: Um, Morning, everyone. Um, Kids, it's great to have you here. Um, It's lovely to see your faces. I'd like to, with obviously doing grill the preacher for the first time, I'd like to also just invent another new feature of a Sunday morning, um, which particularly for the Bowyer children actually, um, (coughs) which is going to be called grill your parents. Um, (coughs) So I'd like you to listen carefully during what I'm saying. Your parents, all of your parents. Um, will sit there and they will look very wise. They will look like they're listening really, really carefully all the way through the preach. But sometimes, occasionally, their minds might drift off occasionally to, you know, what am I cooking for tea tonight? What would my gladiator name be if I was on gladiators? (laughs) Will England take those last three wickets? Maybe that's just me. But um, listen really carefully. See if there's a little something you can hear and quiz your parents and see if they were listening at the same point. See if their attentions drift off, drifted off. See if there's anything you can hear um, about what we're saying today. So we're continuing our series this morning um, in Matthew. Uh, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, so one of Jesus' biographies, story of his life. Um, we've called this series Who Do You Say I Am? As throughout this series, we're going to be looking at Jesus, and we're going to be looking at who he actually was. We're going to, by looking at Jesus' life, we're going to see um, people that he, things he does. We're going to see the people that he spends his time with. We're going to see what he says to his friends, what he says to crowds. Um, We'll see the stories he tells, the miracles he performs, Um, and all of that. We're going to piece together to give us a picture of who this man was, Um, and therefore. Having found out who this man was, what do we need to do about that? Is there anything we need to do about finding out about this man? Um, Today, we're going to spend some time in chapters 5 to 7. We're going to look particularly at things that Jesus taught. Jesus taught to his disciples. Jesus taught to crowds. Um, In probably one of the most famous parts of the New Testament... um, certainly one of the most influential parts of the New Testament. We're going to cover um, the Sermon of the Mount. We're not going to cover the whole Sermon of the Mount in intricate detail, but we are going to look at some of the Sermon of the Mount. Um, And As we look at what Jesus wanted to teach his disciples, um, I want to see what his teaching tells us about him and life in his kingdom. Um, This is almost like Jesus' manifesto. It's Jesus setting out what life is like in his kingdom, what's like, what he is like um, and what it means if we vote for him, as it were, if it was a manifesto, and decide to follow him. Um, so I actually want to start at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. I want to start with the parable that he tells at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, um, which is the parable of the wise and the foolish builders. And I think that will help us a good way of summarising what we can learn about Jesus, what we can learn about following him. Um, from the rest of these chapters. So let's start at the end. Um, let's start in chapter 7, verse 24. and It's the parable of the wise and foolish builders. It says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But... Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of their law. So I grew up going to church. I... um, went to Sunday school, um, and the way you can tell someone who grew up and going to church, the way you can tell someone who went to Sunday school is that every story, every other story that they know, every other verse that they know, has a song that goes with it. Um, and often those people will start singing that song, and if you didn't grow up going to church, you will sit there going, why are you singing to me? But this is one of those stories that has a song with it. Um, it being a Sunday school song, it's a very cheerful song. It has actions, obviously. Um, and so when I, read this, when I read this passage, I'm immediately taken back to being in Sunday school, singing that song. We used to sing very joyfully about the rains coming down and the floods coming up and the walls coming, tumbling down. Um <coughs> <laughs> Um, It's very cheery, um, and it would become less cheery if I sang it. Um, (coughs) And lots of you will know that song that I'm talking about. Um, And so my first instinct when I think of this story is it's quite a funny story, it's quite a jolly story, it's quite a sort of silly story. The foolish man who built his house on the sand is a bit of a slapstick kind of character. He's the butt of the joke. Oh, silly man, he built his house on the sand. And you kind of, it's just a bit of fun, this story. But actually when you read back through this story and you read about it, it's far from that. It's actually a really serious warning of a story. Like a lot of children's songs and silly children's songs, when you actually think about the words, it's a lot more serious. it's actually quite a terrifying warning. We were sitting there quite jolly, quite jolly going, ah, and the rains came up and the floods came down. And his walls came tumbling down. Wait a minute. Someone's walls came tumbling down. That's not a, it's not a fun, jolly thing. Um, <clears throat> some people paint, like to paint the Sermon of the Mount as sort of wise teaching by a good moral teacher. Um, they say that Jesus' words are good ones to try and live by, um, but they're not really much more than that. They say that Jesus' words are like a collection of sayings that maybe would look good on a tea towel or a screensaver or on a T-shirt, but not much more than that. They say that Jesus is a man to admire, but he's not necessarily a man to follow. But in telling this story, Jesus is saying that his words, um, his teachings are far more important than that. The contrast between the wise and the foolish builder shows us that Jesus doesn't just think that following him will make your life a bit better, that it's a good idea, um, but that following him is essential. And if you don't follow him, if you don't put your house on the rock, things will come crashing down. We might have sung quite happily as children about the walls come crashing down and the silly man, but actually it's much more serious than that. When you, you often see floods on the news, don't you? We've had some in Peterborough um, a couple of weeks ago. And whenever you see floods on the news, you see similar images. You see people um, affected by them. They're always caught off, by go- off guard. The floods come from nowhere. What they saw quite close to their house as something that was quite nice, quite innocent, quite a nice scenic thing, suddenly is bringing complete devastation suddenly that river has got much more power. And so Jesus uses this image of a flood, of the walls coming crashing down, to warn his listeners to not let it happen to them. It's really, really black and white teaching. There's no grey area. It's follow me, obey my teaching, and you'll be on solid ground. But if you don't, it's not... You'll be building on slightly less firm ground. Things might be okay, but they won't be as good as they were before. It's an image of the, everything coming crashing down, the walls tumbling down, everything being swept away. And so Jesus finishes his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount by making it clear to those listening how important what he's just said is. He's not the latest life coach. He's not giving good advice on how to live a good life. He's not the newest moral teacher who's got some good ideas for how you might be able to improve society and make things a bit better. He's not about to release a a new book that's going to be in the supermarkets. Um, This is all or nothing stuff. Jesus is saying, you're either with me or you're not. You're either building on solid ground or everything is going to come crashing down. Now, I don't think this is a parable that's just aimed at people who don't call themselves Christians. In the verses that come before this parable, um, Jesus warns in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's a scary warning for some people who think they know Jesus, but will be told, as it says in verse 23, or think they've, they're, they're saying they know Jesus. But in verse 23, it says, they will say, Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. The image of building a house paints a picture of full commitment. Your house is your base. It's where you put your roots down. When Jesus talks about obeying him, he's talking about his word, his teaching coming first. <laughs> Obeying Jesus being the first priority in our lives. Luke mentioned last week about how when you first, maybe you're in a situation where when you first follow Jesus, Jesus was your number one, but now maybe he's number two or number three or number four. This passage is a real warning to you if you can identify with that. Um, if you maybe think that following him is first amongst a few joint priorities or a few other things in your lives that you think are important. Following Jesus is not like following someone on social media. On social media, you can follow someone. And basically, what that means is that they pop into your attention um, every so often, but they're competing with lots of other things that are trying to grab your attention. And the algorithm will throw them in your attention a lot sometimes. And then, before you know it, You've not really thought about that thing for several weeks and several months. Um, <clears throat> if the algorithm pushes them in our direction, they're in our attention. If they're not, other things are grabbing our attention. Jesus doesn't want to compete with other things for our attention. That's often hard for us in our society. There's loads of things Um Pushing for our attention. Our families, our workplaces, our money, our comfort. um, All these things are trying to take our attention, trying to get us to push, push for our attention. But Jesus doesn't want obeying him to be one of our many priorities. He wants obeying him to be the lens through when we think about everything else. So when we make decisions about money, when we make decisions about family, when we make decisions about our time or our work or our friends, He knows what's best for us, and he knows that it's best to make those decisions through the lens of obeying him. Jesus warns in chapter 6, verse 24, in this sermon, he says, No one can serve two masters. He wants our houses to be built fully on the rock, not partly on the rock and partly on sand. So it's clear that everyone who hears this message has got a decision to make about Jesus and his teaching. Are you building your whole house on him? Or are you building it on sand? Are you on solid ground? Or are you going to be swept away? Jesus is clear there's a decision to be made. But what does it mean to obey his teaching? And what is it about Jesus' teaching that makes it this essential for us? How can he make such big claims and demands of us? I want to try and get a sense of what it means means to build our house on the rock and what it doesn't mean. Um, what is life like in his kingdom? So we've said the Sermon on the Mount is known for its radical moral teaching. He covers a lot of ground in these chapters. In fact, in youth, we've been covering the Sermon on the Mount for lots and lots of weeks. Um, he talks about um, solving disputes, about anger, about adultery and marriages, about honesty, about how to respond when we've been wronged, um, as well as teaching about giving and fasting and praying. And it's really easy for us to underestimate how radical Jesus' teaching was. The concepts of turning the other cheek and loving your enemies were and are completely radical um, ideas. But building our lives on these morals and following these morals is not the solid ground that Jesus was talking about. The morals aren't the solid ground. Because ultimately morality and following rules fails however hard we try to be morally righteous however hard we try to reach the standard that's shown in these verses we're going to fall short jesus says in chapter, verse 20 of chapter 5 unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven we can't reach heaven's standards by our own efforts it's easy for us to think of this sand as being things like money or power or other things. Um, but Glenn Scrivener, um, who says this in his Reading Between the Lines set of Bible reading notes, I can really recommend the really quick, easy things to, to get hold of. He says this, Building on the sand is like, can be like trusting in your ministry, in your religious achievements, or your spiritual experience. The sand doesn't just represent worldly confidence. It represents religious confidence too. Our behaviour can't save us, but Jesus can. The teaching in these verses points to a standard that we can't reach and show us how much we need a saviour. And these verses show us that he's a willing saviour. In verses 7 and 8 of chapter 8, um, well, I don't think that's chapter. I think I've typed that wrong. But he says, at some point he says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to open to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be open to you. Jesus is what saves us, and Jesus is willing to save to save us. I've got enough verses of my own to cover without dipping into other people's chapters. But um I think the scene of the start of chapter 8 sums this up nicely. On the way, on his way down the mountain, after finishing the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus um, comes across a man um, who has leprosy. And he says, the man says to him, Lord, if you are willing, make me clean. And Jesus' response, I am willing, be clean. So Jesus is what saves us. Our morality and our striving doesn't. But Jesus still talks about putting these words into practice. They're not what saves us, but trying to live by them is the only way to respond to being saved by him. We can move away from obeying to try and win God's favour. We don't need to do that anymore. Um, But we can move into winning. um, Sorry, I'll say that again. So we don't know, we don't, um, we can move away from obeying God to try and win his favor, but we can move into obeying God because we're enjoying living in his grace. To see what God has done for us and then decides to live our own way would be completely madness. So when Jesus talks in the parable of the wise builders being those who put, be, sorry, of being people who hear those words and put them into practice, the putting into practice, comes as a response to building on the rock rather than something we need to do to earn a space in the rock. We're not trying to desperately get ourselves onto the rock anymore, but putting into practice what he's said, his teaching is what we do as a response. Building on the rock means building on something far greater. When we build on the rock, we're, not building, we're building on a place where there's no condemnation, no more feeling, not qualified, no more, no, no more shame. We can put his words into practice from a place of freedom from being accepted, forgiven, and loved by God. So, I want to look at some things that Jesus says come as a part of following him and part of being in his kingdom. First thing, Jesus says, building on the rock is a place where Jesus says, wants to make it clear that we're doing it as a family, we're doing it as part of a family. In the whole Old Testament, um, God is referred to as Father 14 times. In these verses, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus refers to him as Father 17 times. Not just my Father, but our Father. We get to call God the same name that Jesus does. I think if you're in here and you're normally in glow, if you've listened to nothing else, that is a really good sentence to go away with. You get to call God Father. That's the same name that Jesus does. It's an amazing, amazing um, promise. And it changes so much. It changes so much about our relationship with God. It completely revolutionises the way that we talk to him, the way that we have relationship with him. Following Jesus isn't about having a relationship with a distant God. We're not desperately trying to snatch some of his attention um, and a glimmer of his attention, but it's about having an intimate and close relationship with our heavenly Father. The Sermon on the Mount paints a beautiful picture of what that relationship is like. In chapter six, Jesus tells his disciples that when they pray, they should go into their rooms and close the door. There's no need for any pretentious language or attempts to impress. It's an amazing image of how close the relationship we can have with the God who created the universe, who flung stars into space is. It's that shut the door, go into your room. The people that we share a room with and close the doors with, other people that we're closest with. And that's, what, that's the relationship that God wants to have with us. This relationship is one where we know as well, we're valued and we're noticed and we're listened to. In chapter six in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about giving, praying and fasting. And he makes it clear that he sees what others don't see. In the Lord's Prayer, he encourages us to turn to him for our daily bread, the little things, the simple things in life, the things that you think most people might think are insignificant. At the end of chapter 6, he tells us not to worry and promises to give us what we need. In chapter 7 verse 11, he makes it clear how much he loves to give us good gifts. Maybe you're here today and you feel like a little bit invisible or you feel like people don't really notice you. You feel like you could disappear and people wouldn't Really, pay much attention. The relationship we have with God is one where we are valued, noticed, and listened to. He loves to give us good things. He sees us when no one else sees us. Jesus makes it clear that this is what life in the new creation is like, what his kingdom is like. A key part of being in his kingdom is having a close and intimate relationship with the King of Kings. The King of Kings isn't distant, he isn't far away. He's close and he's intimate and he wants to have that relationship with him. And when we obey him and follow his teaching, we can be confident that through him, we will be making a significant and positive difference to the world around us, bringing flavour and hope to our world. So chapter five, verses 13 and 14, describe Jesus' followers as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We can really underestimate and underplay the difference we can make to the world and that we do make to the world. We're probably constantly being told that. We've got an enemy who wants to tell us that we're insignificant and we're not noticed and we don't make much difference. Chapter five tells us that is rubbish. I love that both of these two images that he uses, salt and light, are everyday things. Maybe things that we take for granted actually, things that we don't notice or we only notice when they're not there. It's amazing the difference a few grains of salt can make to a meal that hasn't been seasoned. I was far too old before I discovered that actually you're supposed to season your food. I think I pretty much went through the whole of university not realising the difference that salt can make to um, (laughs) actually making the food that I was cooking edible. Um And so... Even if we feel small and insignificant, Jesus tells us that when we're following him, we're making a significant difference. But he calls us. He says that to us, not because he wants us to store it in our heads, but because he's calling us to action. He doesn't want to, us to know that we can be the light of the world and we can be the salt of the earth. He wants us to be the light of the world and be the salt of the earth. He calls us to go and do it. He tells us in those verses, he says, put your light on the stand and let it shine before men. It's not, and it's worth noting, it's not shine more brightly or stoke your fires, but just let it shine. Put your light where people can see it. There's no striving, it's just be yourself. Um, <clears throat> The call is just to be who we've been made to be through the gospel and let others see it. We may feel small and insignificant, but there's a saying that says, all the darkness in the world cannot extinguish the light of a single candle. Where there's darkness. Even if you're a tiny light, you'll be able to see the light. If we've been saved, we will make the world a more flavourful, hopeful place just by being who he has made us to be and doing what he tells us to do. So we've already seen that our actions aren't what save us and what we achieve or don't achieve doesn't affect our standing with God. But Jesus isn't calling us to a superficial, a half-hearted, pick-a-mix faith. He's called us to follow the ways of his new creation, the ways of his kingdom. And what an amazing kingdom these verses paint a picture of. We could spend a whole series a whole sort of sermon on each of the chapters in, or each of the little sections in the sermon out. But the picture of the God's kingdom is incredible. It's a place where there isn't just no murder, but there's no anger between people. It's not just a place where there's no adultery, it's a place where there's we're free of lust and free of desire for things that aren't ours. It's a place where if something is said, it's meant. The kingdom of God is somewhere um, where there's no deception, where there's, it's a place free of revenge, a place free of retaliation, a place where love isn't only reserved for friends and particularly special people, but for everyone. We're not following him because we think that obeying him is going to save us. Um, Or that we feel that we need to impress. Instead, we're following because we have seen firsthand how amazing our God is, how incredible his kingdom is. And we want to do everything we can to live as closely as we can to his ways. A half hearted approach towards building our lives on his teaching, a sort of, I'll do this bit, but this bit is too hard or this bit's too convenient, inconvenient, is just completely nonsensical when we see how glorious, how amazing his kingdom is and how amazing it is to be part of his kingdom. Surely we should be striving to live as closely to the ways of his kingdom as we can. So, um, as we finish, um, these, the verses in um, chapter, five, chapter five to seven finish in 20, verse 28 and verse 29 with the crowds recognising that Jesus was something different. They were amazed at his teaching um, and saw that he taught as one with authority and not as their teachers of the law. The crowds all spotted that Jesus had something that other people didn't have. They all recognised it. But what we don't know is whether they acted on it. They could see it, but we don't know whether they acted on it. Recognising that Jesus was special is one thing, Even recognising that he's the son of God is one thing, but it's not acting on it. Jesus doesn't want acknowledgement. He wants people to build their lives fully on him. And so as we finish this morning, and maybe as the bands start to come up, um, we need to reflect on that ourselves. We need to make some decisions ourselves we need to reflect, am I building on the rock? Am I building fully on the rock? If we're not, do we want to? Should we be? Um, If we think, if you're hearing that this morning and you're thinking, I think I was building fully on the rock, but a little bit of this is now, a little bit of me is now on the sand. Maybe God's highlighting something for you now, or as we mentioned that this morning, you've got a decision to make. It might be that you've not made the decision yet to follow him. You might be complete, no, you're completely on the that, you've not followed him. God would tell you, well, I would say, I would encourage you this morning that you need to make a decision. It's not a time for, oh, I'll wait and see in a few weeks' time or I'll wait till this happens. God would encourage you to reflect this morning and, and, this, and make a decision. Um, if you're building something on your, um, and you think, oh, is that worth it? I think it's worth thinking about, will it be there when the pressure's on? Will it stand up when the storms come in, when the waves come crashing in? Um, or is Jesus t- teaching a more solid foundation that you need to move your house onto? Um, <clears throat> Maybe, maybe it's that thing of morality. Maybe you know that actually you're trying to impress God or you feel like everything you're doing, you do it to try and impress God or um, just earn his favour. God wants to free you from that as well. God wants to tell you that that's not what building on the rock is, that building on the rock is um, a place that's free from shame, free from striving, free from condemnation. Um, so should we stand together? Um, I'd love to if anybody would, if you're feeling like you want to respond to that or I would really encourage you to do that in this time um, it'd be good as well just to respond to the God who lets us build on the rock and thank him for the fact that what his kingdom is like praise him for what his kingdom life in his kingdom is like praise him for the fact that um, he wants to save us and that he can save us um, and yeah. Over oh, to you, Bant.